This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We've had a bunch of headlines about the virus. And of course, we were just talking about kind of the push-pull when it comes to opening up schools. Let's get to one of our go-to voices when it comes to the virus and find out really the headlines you need to be aware of. Dr. Sandro Galea, he is Dean and Professor at Boston University's School of Public Health, author of Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. He joins us once again uh, on the phone from Boston. So nice, um, Sandro, to have you here with us once again. I do feel like... We are at this really tough point where there is so much pressure to reopen the economy um, because there's people who need to go back to work. We need to get the economy moving again. But yet we're still nervous about what we don't know about this virus. And then, of course, the spikes that we're seeing certainly in the western part of our country. What do we need to know about where we are right now? Well, thank you for having me again. We we should be nervous. Uh, you said that uh, we are nervous about uh, where we are at, and I think it's appropriate for us to be nervous. At the same time, we're at a point where we should have the sophistication to balance nervousness about risk with the things that we need to do to get our country moving again. And uh, that is where, in some respects, our political conversation has failed us. But leaving the politics out of it, we as citizens should know that we are still in the middle of this pandemic, that uh, we have more cases than we've ever had during the pandemic. It has shifted geographies. It's gone from the Northeast to the the epicenters now being in the South and in the Southwest. We also should know that we are learning more and more about how this pandemic is transmitted. We know that being inside and uh, being in closed congregation is what is largely fueling this pandemic, which means that we should be as much as possible outside social distancing, wearing masks. We know that. If we did this across the board, we should be able to bring this pandemic under control. Now, at the same time, the challenge is that the fear, the temptation is to say, we cannot do anything. We are captive, held captive by this pandemic. But we've been at this now for almost six months. And I think our job together is to figure out how to manage the risk so we can do what we need to do as a society. What do you think, Dr. Galea, is the most important thing we've learned about sort of the, the way of life? I mean, you mentioned social distancing and masks, and, and clearly that's top of mind for most people, although, as you alluded to earlier, there's a political aspect to, to that as well. What do you think is the thing that's most important that we understand about this virus and transmission? Increasingly, we are beginning to understand that the virus is spread when we are inside with a lot of people present who are not taking precautions with poor air circulation. So that means that we should avoid large gatherings. We should avoid being together with hundreds of people. And uh, we should always be wearing masks when we're inside. And we should be keeping our distance from people as much as possible. That we know. We also know that you're much less likely to get the virus, for example, when you're outside and uh, when you're when you're distant from people. So in some respects, those two observations by themselves should be enough to tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And that should go a long way towards mitigating spread. 
Yeah, but, but that makes it awful tricky then to open up a major city, right? Well, it, if, well, we are in we are in summer in much of the country right now, which mm. of course helps us because we can be outside much more than we normally can. It'll be, become much harder once we get to October, November, of course. You know, I'm in the middle of um, in my day job as a dean of a school of public health in the business of reopening the school for the fall, and we are like any other large organization implementing steps to have people being distant to make sure everybody wears masks to make sure everybody's washing their hands to limit number of people in the building so it's complicated and it's certainly it's certainly difficult but it's the right thing to do and certainly although it's harder than say giving up and just saying we're all going to stay in our houses it is a way for us to learn to deal with risk to minimize the risk as much as possible but create the economic and social opportunities that we want to live for and so, Dr. Galea, what are you doing specifically or what's what's an interesting thing that maybe you guys have come up with? Because you had the benefit, uh, as you say, and, and or maybe the additional weight of running a school, but it's also a school of public health. So you have the best advice and, and the best people around <laughs> you, including yourself, to make these decisions. So what's something you can share with us that you guys have come up with for, for your campus and your crew? Well, I think there are there are two levels of precautions. So level one is making sure that we have sufficient testing so that we can catch cases early, so we can we can isolate people who have uh, who are COVID positive, as well as find their contacts and isolate them as well. So that's level one. Level one means making sure that you catch cases early, so that cases do not become clusters that do not worsen the epidemic. Level two is assuming that you're doing level one, which means you're catching cases early is making sure then that the virus doesn't spread in a community. And to do that, you need to distance people, keep people sort of apart from each other, make sure everybody's wearing a mask, and make sure that you have high hygiene and sanitation. Now, in the context of a school, we, for example, normally have many more people in a given classroom than we will have in the fall. So we will be spacing people out six feet apart and probably not have all the students in the same classroom at the same time. We have developed systems that we are able to teach our courses in person, yes, but also with a digital component. So some students will be online while some will be in the classroom. Now, these are, these are difficult measures to put in place. They require work. They require a lot of thought about how to do them. But it is our way in our particular context to make sure that we can return to teaching, make sure students can continue towards their educational goals, but also keeping everybody safe. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Let's get right back to our conversation with Dr. Sandro Galea, Dean of the Boston University School of Public Health, also the author of Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations about the Public's Health. And Dr. Galea, Carol and I were talking via instant message in the break. I'm so glad you reminded us uh, when we were talking before that you also are the dean of this massive public health school because, you know, we think of you as this expert doctor. You've got so many different things on your plate, not the least of which is, you know, we talked about getting students and faculty back on campus, but a wrinkle this week with the visa issue brought up by the president. How are you looking at that and how does it potentially affect your student body? Yeah, the uh, the visa guidance from uh, the president is one in a long line of uh, divisive moves that really are are inspired by cruelty more than anything else. That it makes uh, there is no logic in the pandemic as to why that uh, visa move was necessary. What the visa move does is it prohibits students, international students, from getting educational visa for online only courses. Now, in our school, we are doing all our teaching as a hybrid, both in person and online. 
so it should not affect our students. But many of our peer schools, schools of public health, other graduate schools, and many other undergraduate colleges that have moved their teaching to all online, their students, at least as it stands right now, may not be able to get visas to study in the United States. So this is really another example of the administration's efforts to divide us and by casting blame on on the other, on this notion that it is, uh, it is immigrants who are bringing challenges to our shores when nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, I just, I do wonder about this move. And, and as you said, in terms of the impact on your school, maybe you're not going to feel it as much, but there are schools that really are dependent on it um, because they want the diverse body, but they also financially, it's an important component of the, of their overall, you know, their overall financial picture. Uh, uh, no, absolutely. It's, uh, it, you know, for any, any, any excellent uh, graduate school or really any grad- excellent university aspires to create an environment that is diverse. That means including Americans, including uh, students from all over the world, including students of all stripes. That is how we learn. That is how we build a pluralistic society where we learn how to think together from people who are different than us. What this guidance does is it tries to remove from our communities students who are not from here. And, and, and that is that, that, that hurts us as much as it hurts them. It hurts us as a country because we are taking away from us the capacity to, to be with, learn from, debate with students from other backgrounds. And, of course, it hurts students from these other backgrounds who cannot come and pursue their educational dreams in this country. It, it really is a, a lose-lose for us and for the world. So I wonder, six months from now eight months from now, three months from now, do you feel like we will feel all more normal because we'll be back at work, back at school? What's the time frame, um, Sandra, that you think is realistic here at this point? Yeah, Carol, I think that's the question we all want to know the answer to. I also want to know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I think you'll find that uh, anybody in public health is very reluctant to give that answer simply because we do not know. And given where the stage of the pandemic is now, it's really difficult to tell. Will we eventually get through this pandemic? We definitely will. There will be, we will get to a vaccine or the pandemic will stop. There will be enough herd immunity that the pandemic will stop. It's hard to say how long that will take. Will it take three months? Will it take six months? Will it take a year? It's really hard to make those kind of estimates. And for any estimate I give you, I could argue against my own estimate. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, superstar cities, apparently not all that they're cracked up to be, especially for black male college graduates. This is uh, the results of a new study from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Let's talk about that study and his story in Business Week. Bloomberg Business Week Economics Editor Peter Coy joining us right now on the phone in New Jersey. Um, Peter, tell us about this. Tell us about the study and what they found out. It's a study called The Faltering Escalator of Urban Opportunity. It's by David Autor, a prominent economist at MIT, who I really love. He does such excellent work. This is part of a task force that he co-chairs called the Task Force on the Work of the Future. So uh, the, the conventional wisdom is that cities are good places for opportunity because there are things, there are kinds of jobs that are available in cities that simply aren't available in suburbs or rural areas. And for a long while, that was true. If you moved to the city, you were likely to get a better job, earn more money, and be on an escalator towards higher pay. Um, but what he's found is that is going back as far as like 1980, that started to become less true, and it's become less and less true as time has gone by. And uh, so 
there's more of a barbell now. There are some great jobs for upper-income people, and there are some plentiful jobs for people at the bottom, uh, whether they are security guards or food preparation types, uh, you know, service jobs like that. But the kind of the middle-paying jobs, there are far fewer of them than there were in past decades. Well, also with us is Business Week editor Joel Weber joining us from Massachusetts. So, Joel, put this story in context. I mean, we love a good Peter Coy story. I know you're never one to turn it down either. But frame this for us in in the sort of broader uh, theme of the magazine and what you're trying to do. Um, Funny enough, it relates to uh, a, a conversation Peter and I were actually just having kind of earlier in the day. And I think it helps inform some of um, coverage that you'll probably continue to be seeing from us because, you know, cities have really been this um, this engine of economic activity. And that is has been true for, you know, us being sort of in New York City proper yeah. most of the time and in the before times. Um, but if you think about it writ large, especially for the American economy, that has been the story of um, sort of the the economic engine of America has been sort of like the 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 movement towards cities, the economic activity that they survive that they provide. And now that the pandemic, um, as Peter kind of said, it, it actually is almost sort of like ex- accelerated some trends. And some of those were pre-existing trends and others were were things that were sort of unexpected. Um, and I think it puts the the burden on cities in a, in a way that um, it doesn't for a lot of other economic models. And I think that that is going to be um, just an ongoing conversation of like, you know, you take New York City, for instance, and as Peter and I were talking about earlier, it was like, so what does this mean for the MTA, right? Like Hmm. MTA, all all of these things that the city, the city needs people in order to, to fuel the city itself. And the moment that you sort of remove the people from that equation, it starts to actually become somewhat of a downward spiral. So what does that mean, Peter? I mean, like, play this out for us, uh, you know, based on the folks you talk to and and your own research and and expertise. I mean, we're talking about, as Joel just mentioned, basic infrastructure. I mean, just sort of the way that cities live and breathe and grow and uh, and operate. Yeah. Well, New York City is unique in the United States in its density, particularly Manhattan. Uh, It's not the norm for U.S. cities. You hear a lot of people talking about edge cities, which yeah. are far less dense and in some ways more sustainable. The problem with like New York is that the subway needs a lot of riders to, you know, to pay its budget. You take away all the riders and you still run the trains and you're running massive deficits. That's just unsustainable. So uh, you can't get away with less density in New York. But I just want to quickly go back to the topic of male um, college grads, which uh, – Carol mentioned in her intro is that that's a special problem because in general the middle-paying jobs were held by people maybe without uh, college degrees uh, and so it was the people without college degrees in general who suffered the most from this hollowing out but for black male college grads they have been dragged down as well and uh, that was one of the big surprises for Autor in his research, that they, uh, their share of middle-paying jobs went down and their share of low-paying jobs went up from 1980 to 2015. Mm. So that's a, just a compounding all the other problems we've been talking about. 
Well, and it's interesting, you know, Peter, as you write, I mean, it's not, we've often talked about just these cities becoming unaffordable for so many, but as you point out and the research shows, you know, that middle paying occupations are even lower. I mean, these are jobs that are going away and not being replaced. And so there isn't even that demand for those kinds of workers. Yeah, right. I mean, the, the, the theory that cities are magnets of, or escalators of opportunity leads you to believe, well, if only we could deal with the cost, cost of housing, for example, right. then we'd really solve all our problems. But what Autor is saying is, eh, even that wouldn't really do it because it's, it's not just that people can't afford to work there. It's just that they show up there and there's nothing for them to do. Mm. So, Peter, um, if you think about sort of what what position this really puts cities in, in sort of the medium to long term, you know, what do you what do you and and I'm bringing this back to part of the conversation we had, which is if you if you think about um, uh, what 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 does this mean for this thing that's been, you know, this center of economic activity? Like, what do you what do you think the future of cities starts to look like? I think the problem, now let's bring it back to COVID and the recession, is that this, Autor's research goes through 2015 before that happened, but that actually, this actually exacerbates the problem because uh, cities, in his research, were still magnets for, you know, the highly skilled, highly compensated people in finance, for example. A lot of people probably listening to this uh, radio program right now, but if they're finding that they can live at home in Westchester, Nassau, Suffolk, Bergen, whatever, then they might do it, and then there's even less reason to live and work in the city, and that worsens the city's finances. And that also hurts the people at the bottom, because those people at the bottom are basically serving the people at the top. So the whole economic model just kind of dissolves. Uh, it's a really, really interesting story. Uh, we always count on you, Peter, for finding these ideas that you twist the prism just a little bit and, and find something uh, that's extraordinary use, you, extraordinarily useful. Easy for me to say. Peter Coy, thank you so much, economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week, along with Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here with you on... A Wednesday. That's right. I got it right this time. It's a Wednesday. <laughs> Emily Chasen back with us, sustainability editor for Bloomberg. It's when we do uh, Bloomberg Green, by the way, Jason. It is. Kelly. I know. It all <laughs> sort of comes together. I just need these markers, Carol, know, to let me know where I am because I'm staring both. out at the exact same backyard that I've been staring at for 17 weeks. It's, it's lovely. greener, though. It's greener. It's green, and it's green. Uh, a little cloudy and rainy here uh, in Westchester. Uh, Emily Chasen is here with us. So, Emily, a lot going on in the world of Green, including a big conversation that you had. Tell us about it. Oh, so I guess which conversation are you talking about? Al Gore! Al Gore! I'm sorry, you have so many big conversations. I have to be more specific. Al Gore, tell us about uh, the former vice president. I think that was a flex on Emily's part. Yeah, exactly. Oh, what? Oh, yeah. Wait, which official was I talking to? So tell us about the conversation. Yeah, we had a conversation this week about, you know, how this is sort of a once in a generational opportunity to rebuild and rethink everything that we're working with in our economy. Um, And he made some really good points about what needs to happen to reset and how people are thinking about science um, and listening to scientists, which is something he's been trying to say for a long time on climate change. And here we are, you know, needing to listen to scientists in coronavirus 
and um, what can we learn from that about the future and what can you rethink about society because we're making changes really fast right now um, and building a more equal, more environmentally friendly future. So he is positive going forward? He thinks we get to a better place? He's very optimistic for sure. So there's a lot of changes that he thought had accelerated, like using more telehealth, more distributed work, um, where the need for jobs dovetails with the need to retrofit buildings. So that was sort of our conversation. And, I mean, this is a guy, I mean, you've written a lot about uh, the former vice president over the years, Emily, and and I do, you know, sort of wonder about this moment and how he sees it, uh, as you've just described, because he's sort of been waiting a long time for everybody to kind of get on board. And and I wonder uh, if, if this time sort of feels different to some extent. Yeah, I would say that, you know, it's interesting from his perspective that he's been doing this a long time and building these long-term views. And the moment like this says, hey, we can actually accelerate and speed things up. Um, And so looking at different trends, we talked a lot about fundamental changes in consumer and social behavior, um, about just ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and um, also about stimulus, right, and the, the role of government in making this happen. Yeah, it's it's just interesting, and we'll see ultimately what happens. I feel like this has been a big week for the green environment. I think about all of the rulings when it comes to pipelines, some of the big pipelines, yeah. and we just had a we had one as we kicked off our show about energy transfer on the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, They're like, you know, oh, you wait- you ruled that? No, we're good. <laughs> we're good. We're going to keep yeah. going with it. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I'll say sorry later. Um, Talk to us about some of the headlines that are coming across uh, your desk right now that you're writing about. Yeah, it was a really bad week to be a pipeline in North America. We can start there, right? So um, just over the past few days, the Atlantic Coast Natural Gas Pipeline was canceled by its developers. The Dakota Access Oil Pipeline was shut down by a federal judge. And the Trump administration lost its Supreme Court bid to bring back the Keystone XL oil pipeline. So it seems like they're really risky assets. Um, It's interesting because... Warren Buffett came in and, and bought some pipeline assets, and people really watch him carefully and say, you know, what is he seeing there? And there is still a use for natural gas um, in the transition. Natural gas demand has fallen a lot in COVID over the past few months, but um, there is a use for them in terms of, like, building hydrogen, in terms of switching off of coal. Um, so, and obviously the U.S. has a huge um, amount of natural gas that we're sitting on. But um, all the methane leaks and all the pollution from it, people are wondering, you know, maybe it's not such a useful fuel. So it's a big debate, but it seems much riskier than it was a few months ago, for sure. Can you talk to us about hydrogen um, and what Europe's doing? I have to say, this is my husband. You know, Jason, you say, have you guys bought an EV yet? Part of the reason is, is my husband is kind of like, I'm waiting for hydrogen. Um, So what are we hearing on that front, Emily? Yeah, hydrogen is really exciting. Um, I guess... There's tons of movement right now to see whether you can build hydrogen without natural gas um, and whether you can make low-carbon hydrogen because when hydrogen burns, it just becomes um, water. In yeah. the so it's way better for air pollution in the cities. Um, it's pretty easy to, like, go to a hydrogen station and just sort of swap out your canister as opposed to um, having to wait for a battery to recharge. So a lot of people are really excited about it. It's lighter than batteries, so um, if you're a truck, hydrogen might be a better option. 
Um, so there's a lot of possibility there for sure. As long as it doesn't blow up, right? That's always the problem. Like, I'm so glad you said it because I was like, is it that thing that can actually explode? Or am I misremembering uh, chemistry uh, in any case? All right, Emily Chasen, thank you. As always, we took you all over the place. Thanks for coming with us. Uh, Emily Chasen, of course, is sustainability editor for Bloomberg. Joining us to talk we Bloomberg said Green. we were doing 360-degree world tours today, we did. and that's yeah, what we're doing. Exactly. People need to be prepared. I mean, just look ahead. It's all going to happen. Uh, we are awaiting some comments a little later this hour from the president down in Washington, meeting with the president of Mexico. Um, told yeah. it was meant to be, uh, reporting says it's meant to be a trilateral meeting, but it's just going to be a bilateral meeting because uh, Trudeau is like, I, Trudeau's I, like, I, I can't make it. I'm good. Border is closed. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna stay up here. Any case. Uh, and listen, Mexico also dealing with the virus. Like, there's a lot going on right now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes out of that. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.